Hello and welcome to another edition of the Ulster Rugby Roundup. I am your standing host, Jonathan Bradley, and I am joined today by Adam McKendry. Adam, how are you? I am keeping well, Jonathan. Good to see you again after our weekend in Northampton. Yep, yep. Barely had any time to be apart, Adam, after Ulster's last 16 clinching victory over Northampton at Franklin's Gardens. Third time in four years that the team has made the uh, the knockouts of the uh, the top competition, top competition in Europe, albeit last sixteen this year. But um, first of all, we'll talk about uh, their place in the knockouts before we get to the game itself. How big an achievement do you think it is? How big a signpost do you think it is um, to be in the last sixteen with a game to spare? Well, for, for me, getting to the last 16 isn't actually the achievement. You know, you basically have to avoid being really poor in order not to make the last 16. The real achievement will be getting back to the quarterfinals. It'll be a different path in because you have to win the last 16 tie instead of finishing top of your pool or as one of the best runners up. But the difference is getting to the last 16 isn't a massive achievement it's finishing in one of those top four spots so that essentially if the competition had gone to the quarterfinals instead of the last 16, that for me is more impressive. And right now, Ulster is sitting joint top of pool A, playing some good rugby, a couple of big away wins in Europe. That to me is more significant than making the last 16. It's the fact that they're doing this comfortably. They're doing it in style. And that I think will be more pleasing for Dan McFarland. I think, you know, if Ulster had scraped into the last 16 by finishing eighth in pool A, I don't think there would have been much cause for celebration, even though you could argue, oh, you know, it's great that Ulster are in into the last 16 and you might be able to look at that as progress. But at the end of the day, finishing eighth in a pool of 12 is not the ideal situation. The fact that they are joint top alongside a team like Rassing, as I said, two big away wins, got the business done at home as well. That to me, I think is what will probably be, uh, will probably make Dan McFarland a lot happier than just making the last 16. Do you sense that there hasn't been as much buzz around the idea of making the knockouts this year? And would that tie into what you're saying that you think basically because it's the last 16, it doesn't really feel like the sharp end of the competition yet? Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. Um, and to be honest, I was all on board for uh, sort of cancelling the last 16, rearranging all the games that were cancelled from rounds one and two due to COVID and, and whatnot in France, replaying those during the last 16 weeks and then going straight to the quarterfinals instead. Because for me, that's much more of a, a barometer of where a team is rather than qualifying for a last 16 that you know only four teams per poll don't make it. And whenever you look at some of the teams in the polls, you would really think that Ulster should be there. So for me right now, Ulster are exactly where they should be, which is in the last 16. I think if they hadn't made it to that stage, then there would have been a lot of concern because they are far better than at least four of the teams in that poll, if not five or six of them. So in, in terms of the excitement, like I, I can't if get... If 11 of them, the way the table looks. Well, exactly. <laughs> um, for me, I, I just, I just kind of got it. All of them, if you want to make the argument that they're the only team to have won three games on the pitch. 
True. I mean, yeah, whenever you consider that Racing have five points earned simply because they didn't have COVID. Um, yeah, for me, for me, I can't get excited about a two-legged last 16. It's just not, for me, that's not the European Cup. That's not how uh, the tournament should be run. I understand that it is a stand-in thing just while they're dealing with COVID and trying to make sure that they don't have any additional issues and teams can argue that, oh, we should have got a place because our game was called off due to COVID and they've kind of managed to get around that problem because they have so many more teams qualifying for the knockouts. But for me, if I'm sitting in that Ulster camp, I am far more happy that they are in the top four than they are in the top eight and just reaching the last 16. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. There's a wild hum of like uh, Thursday night Europa League off uh, the idea of a two-legged last 16. But um, look, at the same time, Ulster can only do... They can only do what they can do. They can only uh, overcome the challenges that are put in front of them. And I think, from my perspective, it is worth remembering that I mean, maybe we were being pessimistic at the time, but like we were looking at that draw being like, that's tough. Mm. You had to win in Claremont. I know that was a month ago, but we, we can't overlook the fact that this is part of it. For my money, Northampton, and we'll talk about the game obviously in a second, but for my money, Northampton are a better side by quite a bit than the Bath sides, the Leicester side and the Harlequin side that Ulster beat at those particular times um, going over to England and winning since uh, since Dan McFarland's come in. And obviously still in the business at home uh, with with the bonus point. You know, we sort of come to expect that, but uh, still part of it. So while, yes, I, I 100% agree with you that it would have been a failing had they not qualified for the last 16 I don't think it would have been a surprise to me if they had have still been scrapping for it because it wouldn't have been a surprise to me if they had have lost both of those games. Like even, uh, sorry, both the away games. Even when you look at that team that Saints had out and you talk about Henderson, Cooney and McCluskey being out before you even consider Stockdale and Allison being out as well. But when you talk about those like three sort of integral parts of everything that Ulster do, do well, especially in Europe. I think they deserve a lot of credit. And, you know, it's it's funny looking back to Dan McFarlane's first year when they sort of surprised us by getting into the knockouts. Um, it's easy to forget now that, you know, they weren't expected to go to Scarlet's and, uh, and get that win. And then obviously, as we said, you know, doing the double over Leicester and beating Rassen at home. But like, that team was so settled because they had so few injuries around Europe or like around the blocks of European games that they were basically able to field their near enough their first choice team in virtually all of the uh in all of the key games. And obviously Rory Rory Best went off injured early in the quarterfinal and things like that. But um they've had as many injuries this year as they had last year when it was cited as the reason why. And they had a disappointing Champions Cup campaign. So to overcome that all and be in a position where we're not even talking about the amount of players and the key players that they had missing, I think is still a noteworthy achievement in and of itself, even though I do agree with you. It is hard to be like, yeah, one of the best 16 teams in Europe. So 
I get what you're saying, but I, I do think there is a there is a level of achievement there. But I'm keen to get your thoughts on the game, the game itself, because as I said, there it was probably well flagged that Cooney was going to be out, and we already knew McCluskey and Henderson were going to be out. But what was your thoughts going in, going into this game, like? Because for my money, if you look at how Saints produce their tries, the amount of additional opportunities that Ulster created without taking, like I think this was a more comprehensive victory than it looked with the caveat that I am sure there's a Saints podcast out there saying, well, you know, Ulster only scored off uh, basically being quicker to the bouncing ball three times. Coming into this game... I think there was definitely a, a certain degree of trepidation after that Munster game because the thing that Ulster had built their European season on so far was the fact that they were able to grind out these wins that in previous years they wouldn't have been able to. And then you take the hit down in Toman Park where they essentially reverted to type and lost a game that you thought, based on the previous games this season, they would have closed out and they would have won and it would have been another notch on the on the venues that they've won out away this season. And so you look at Ulster's team, they're missing McCluskey. They've got the boost of Hume being back and we'll go on and I'm sure we'll talk about the back line. Um, they were sensational, every single one of them. You look at missing Henderson, you lose Andrew Warwick early in the game, who has become so solid this year, but going in and especially, you know, Northampton, picking a stronger team than I think everybody expected them to. You know, Chris Boyd alluded in uh, in midweek that he was maybe going to keep his powder dry and put his focus elsewhere. And then all of a sudden he he puts out pretty much his strongest team. You have a couple of exceptions with, you know, Tom Litchfield making his European debut in the centre. But for the most part, you've got Dan Bigger there. You've got Courtney Laws making his 250th appearance. Lewis Ludlam and Tayman Harrison, that back row you suddenly looked at it and you thought to yourself, this is going to be a real challenge for Ulster um, from a game that potentially you thought Northampton aren't going to really care all that much and they're just going to throw in the tile. Now you're in a position where you're coming in and you know that if Ulster win this, they're going to have to earn it. And my goodness, did they earn it? But um, certainly coming into the game... One of the other things I thought was Northampton was going to be a lot colder. It actually turned out to be a, a rather mild afternoon in Northampton and the temperature plummeted immediately after full time. I had to whip the gloves out. Um, That's because you got there on Sunday. If you had been there on Saturday, um, you would have felt the cold. Right. Well, see, I, I landed in at, at 12 o'clock on Sunday afternoon, train straight to Northampton and... Um, I think maybe I was just warmed up from the fact that I was practically sprinting everywhere out of fear I was going to be late. Um, I mean, like, I, like I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. There was a point on Saturday when I was like, "Is this game actually going to go ahead?" Like, I understand they've played some Champions Cup games in serious fog this year, but like the fog when I arrived on Saturday was uh, was something else. Like, you know that big? Um, I think it's actually a lift shaft, but you know that huge pillar outside the uh yeah, yeah. Ground. like you couldn't see that on Saturday because of the fog. Um, and I, it li- it is sort of lifted by the by the early evening but uh there was definitely a point where when I thought whether my uh my first away trip in uh in quite some time was going to be wholly scuppered here but the I thought we were going to have pretty much like a half an hour wait time for kickoff whenever all those fireworks went off. First of all 
they scared the life out of me because I was not expecting them. And second of all, the fog that sort of held around over the pitch, you could see it for the, sort of the first five or ten minutes of the game. It was mad. Great setup, though. Like, I, I know you had been mm. before. I'd never been... I'd never been to Farland's Gardens before. I'd never been to Northampton before. And um, thoroughly enjoyed both. I, I want to give credit to Northampton because they looked after us really well on Sunday. But certainly, yeah, the last time I was there was actually as a as a fan. I was over for the uh, Ulster-Leicester game, the Ruin Pienaar game at Welford Road when they went from six from six. And I was over with my dad and we just looked the night before and we were like, here, Northampton are playing cast on the Friday night. So we decided, oh, why not? We'll head on down. Ended up standing on the terrace and discovered the guy next to us was Ed Slater's dad. So we were chatting to him for a good long time and uh, giving him a bit of ribbon about the game the next day, saying that Ulster were going to win and all that. But credit to Northampton. They looked after us really well. I think Franklin's Gardens is just a fantastic rugby ground. I think it's pretty much exactly what you want as a rugby ground and really looking yeah, forward to getting back again. It's a great rugby town as well. Like mm. So you know yourself, sometimes if you're looking for pubs showing the rugby the day before, it can be a bit of a slog, like, and then when you find out that uh, United were playing Villa at the same time, obviously relatively, you know, Northampton being relatively close to Birmingham, sort of thinking like this is going to be this is going to be a proper struggle. But like I had my my United mate with me, we were we were both catered for the pubs were showing both the rugby and the United game, and another thing that I thought was good is they all you know they have the uh, I know a few. Uh, clubs in England do have this, but they have the the past players bar that we passed on the way out. And just to see how busy that is with people that are like, you know, have represented the club and um, continue to be a part of it is cool. It's like, I don't know how it would work in uh, how it would work in Ravenhill, but like just as a way of, um, I suppose, acknowledging your past players and keeping them in there. Uh, I suppose because another have been sort of a few grumbles in the past that maybe. Uh, Ulster players don't have the say or don't pre-professional era Ulster players maybe it's fair to say don't feel that same connection but that's all by the by heartily recommend the trip to uh, to Franklin's Gardens if uh, if Ulster draw them again in the near future but um, yeah because you talked about the back line there and it is it's the story of the game obviously um, there was a lot made about the average age coming in maybe not as much made over the fact that they were, or the high number of academy graduates, because Mike Larry, Balakin, Ethan McElroy, Hume, Murr, Doak, with the exception of Burns, those are all guys that have come through the player pathway, which is something that obviously also have been criticised an awful lot for before in not producing enough of these players. Mm-hmm. And then um, mocks them on the bench. Shanahan, Shanahan did spend time in the Ulster Academy, obviously, as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the two out halves being the exception, uh, Billy Burns and uh, Andy and Madigan. But Mike Laurie obviously was uh, man of the match, gained a scarcely credible amount of meters because he was, uh, I think he was sixty five ahead of his nearest uh, nearest competitor in the initial stat sheet, and then they added on like a hundred yesterday. Um, so I don't know what they were doing in the original calculation, but. Uh, They'd done him out by the length of a field. It uh, it Big appeared push. yesterday. Two tries, the two, I think it's fair to say, really important tries as well. Because Courtney Laws, it sort of felt was swinging momentum back in Saints' favour 
for both of those because you know we'd had the damn bigger try that was created mm. by him basically just lifting a ball out of an Ulster breakdown yeah. and then Saints were away and for Larry to score just before half time and give Ulster that buffer that it sort of felt like the performance merited was massively important and then obviously the fourth try because you are starting to think that it was maybe going to be one of them days again um, not dissimilar to Thilman Park a week before because they had the maul. It was an interesting element of their performance. They didn't really try and maul an awful lot. They played an awful lot more off the top using mm. that exciting backline. But when they did go for the maul and, um, yeah, Rob Herring broke off a couple of carries, sort of thumping away on the line, and then Courtney Laws got the, uh, got the big turnover. Laurie himself... Stopped just short of the line off a break when Treadwell actually got up to take the uh, to take the ball out of the air, feeling it like a back three player. I really want to talk about that catch because that was outstanding. <laughs> like that's everyone talks about that Rob Balkan catch above his head, like GAA style. Kieran Treadwell for me outdid him. Like that was, <laughs> and the thing was, you, you always have that moment whenever it's a player like that, where for a couple of seconds afterwards you're going, "Was that who I think it was?" And we, yeah, I think yeah. I, I remember looking at you like during the game. I was like, "Was that Treadwell? Like, surely not." But unbelievable. Maybe he's got a career in GAA waiting for him after his rugby Maybe. career's over. <laughs> Maybe if they never get the global calendar sorted out, then uh, they're going to take up a summer sport, I suppose. <laughs> um, but yeah, just Mike Laurie. You know, so much to be at fullback or ten, fullback or ten. He's uh, tearing it up in Europe at fullback this season. Do you think that we're seeing the beginnings of him settling at this position, despite the talk of the almost increased chatter of him settling at 10 this season? Look, I know he wants... confusing after the game when he came out in Rob Balakin's jersey. <laughs> Rob Balakin came out in Greg Jones' jersey, which just threw us for a loop as well. For me... I think you got to stick with him at 15 at the moment. I know he wants to play 10 and you got to respect the wishes of a player, but at some point you've got to override him and say, look, you are far more valuable to us at 15 currently. Because if you take him out of 15, I think you lose one of your most potent attacking weapons in that back three. Like you look at the smarts that he brings to the game at 15 it's not just the case of he is an elusive runner he is a very intelligent player whenever he is at 15 he is able to spot the space we saw that with the 50 22 that he had against Northampton at Ravenhill but just he, he makes the right decisions he's never running up blind alleys and whenever he gets in space you just know he's going to at least challenge the guy in front of him like the run down the touchline that he had off Treadwell's catch you know I think he, he had a guy facing him and two guys chasing him. And it was only down to Alex Mitchell just being that tiny little bit faster than he managed to get back in cover. So for me, I think at some point you've got to say, look, Mike, we know you want to play 10, but right now you're our best 15. So I was thinking about this as I was walking back to the hotel on Sunday night. If Will Addison comes back, are you going to drop Mike Lowry for him at the moment? I would say probably not. I think Larry is the guy in possession of the 15 jersey. And look, we all know Will Addison is... Cool call, but I don't think you can drop any of the back three at the minute. Absolutely not. Um, again, I'm, I have a real penchant for sort of talking about things before we actually bring or get onto them in our schedule. Jacob Stockdale 
being ruled out for the rest of the season. Was he necessarily going to come back and go straight into that back three? Probably not. You know, so, um, but again, we'll, we'll talk about that later on. You know, where would you actually think to yourself, let, let, let's say Ulster had everyone available next week. Would you look at, as you say, would you look at that back line and say, we're, we're going to drop one of you? Absolutely not. You'd be absolutely crazy. And you'd be laughed out by every pundit in the world because that back line was utterly sensational at Franklin's Gardens. I can't, can't fault them. The, the only thing was um, Hutchinson running through slightly easy for the final try. But apart from that, I don't think you can criticise them at all for that game. They were superb. Yeah, I mean, I'll always criticise anyone that allows a 79th minute try when I'm trying to write a live match report because didn't didn't need that late edit. But um, yeah, absolutely superb. I think um, Stuart Moore had a really, really good game and didn't get the same amount of attention as everybody else, but just played to his game, which I think is important because like, whenever you're trying to fill the void left by a player as important as Stuart McCluskey, you can sometimes get caught up in the idea that you have to be Stuart McCluskey when Ulster are far better served by Stuart Moore being the best version of Stuart Moore rather than a lesser version of Stuart McCluskey. I think you saw the value of his carrying quite a lot and his footwork, especially for the for the first try, the, the Balakun try. He was the one that really off the top of, as we say, one of those uh, line outs that they played quickly off. Um, getting to the outside and really sort of creating the momentum that, albeit after um, a bit of a, a bit of a fumble backwards, resulted in the uh, resulted in the Balakun try. McIlroy again, without the uh, with the exception of that one that he kicked out in the full, another really assured performance from somebody that, as we say, there I think is in this team on merit. Like it was, uh, we'd been impressed with him last season, but I don't think anybody would have had him in. Ulster's first choice back three coming into the season. I'd, mm. And I think lots of people now would. I, I want to I make one quick point on Ethan McElroy, and it's something that I didn't notice until I watched the game back. If you watch Larry's second try, the bonus point try, you can see Ethan McElroy from a long way out looking for the support runner. And as soon as he notices that Larry is pretty much directly behind him, just whenever whenever he's in that space, Lowry is pretty much running directly behind him. And McElroy immediately sticks out the arm and tells him to go left. And that's what creates the space down the blind side for him to pass, set Lowry down the touchline and eventually over for the try. It's something like that. You know, this guy's 21, pretty much two or three years out of playing Skills Cup rugby. And he has the courage and the intelligence to make that break and then start directing other guys as to where to go. I think he has been one of the best players for Ulster this year. He's been the big, he's been for me the breakthrough player of this season so far. Because as you say, if you had talked to anybody at the start of the season, would you have had him sort of making such a step up? Probably not. And I'm going to go out on the limb here and I'm going to say, and mainly because Dan mentioned it in post-match, I think Andy Farrell will be seriously considering Ethan McElroy to be called up to the Six Nations squad because he's the kind of guy that you know you can plug into any situation and he's going to give you a solid performance at the very least. 
Yeah, I think it was interesting that uh, Dan mentioned that they'd had discussions about him. I still think you've got Conway, Balakun, James Lowe. I'm not. I'm not saying. He, I'm not saying he will get called up, but I think he's definitely in the equation. Yeah, yeah. But if I could bring you back, because uh, I meant to ask you this question before, if I could bring you back talking about the Six Nations squad, which may have some bearing on his future position. How many fullbacks in Ireland are ahead of Mike Laurie at the minute compared to how many people are would be ahead of him at 10 at the minute? Mm. Keenan definitely would be... like You can't drop Keenan right now. Keenan has been so good for Ireland over the past no. over the past year and a half, couple of years. Um, 100%, but uh, Carberry's out injured, Stockdale's out injured, Addison's out injured. Would you put Mike Healy up? <laughs> Probably not. I mean, Mike, like, Haley I, I wouldn't... Well. Mike Haley has been playing some good rugby and it is obviously already capped. But I was thinking about this earlier. Like things aren't always picked on form, obviously. You know, like James Hume is the form center in Ireland, but mm. nobody thinks that Robbie Henshaw, Bondiaki, or Gary Ringrose aren't going to play against Wales. But like even taking a wider view of it, like is there anybody at 15 you'd have ahead of? Laurie, with the exception of Keenan Knight, I don't think there is. And I think that will, at some stage, start to play a part in this. It depends, I think, also what Farrell thinks his wingers can do in terms of covering at 15. You know, if you feel like Conway can cover 15, do you sort of add him to that mix? And therefore, that takes away an option from Laurie. If you think maybe Mac Hansen can cover 15, I know he's injured at the moment, but he. Could uh, I don't know exactly his injury situation, so I don't know if he'll be available for the Six Nations squad. But for me, yeah, I think I think Lowry definitely you could a hundred percent plug in at at fifteen behind Hugo Keenan. And the thing is, because his versatility does allow him to play at ten. Whenever you're talking about sort of the lack of options behind Johnny Sexton, well, there's another one for you. I think that would sort of be given the lack of ten that he has played in the big games. I think putting Larry at 10 would probably be sort of a, a last-case resort, but that versatility won't stand against them, that's for sure. It's beneficial even from a uh, training point of view to have him mm. be able to play 10, because um, regardless of how many games Sexton's going to play, he's not going to... You know, do you want him training every single session? Mm. And you always need um, someone to run against, and especially someone who is so, so unpredictable as Larry. He's always keeping you on your toes. That only helps your defensive preparation, I'm sure. Yeah, I know. I suppose the uh, the hope is that Cardi's going to come back into the fray, given how well he's playing for. Uh, given how well he's playing for Connor, I think it'd be criminal if he didn't. I think you. I think similar to James Hume being the form centre in Ireland, I think you can't overlook the form fly half in Ireland, which is a hundred percent Jack Cardi. He's been superb since the autumn internationials. Yeah, absolutely. We'll not. Uh, we'll not get too bogged down <laughs> into the Six Nations squad, given that. Uh, it will likely likely be out before you are listening to this podcast. So we'll uh, we'll just talk about the Claremont game. You've sort of made the case early for the importance of being in that top four. Obviously, there's a real importance, a tangible importance to being in the top two because that guarantees you a home quarterfinal, which is obviously something Ulster haven't had since 2014. Top one would be uh, a guaranteed home semi-final if you were to get there which obviously would be in the Aviva but uh, which 
hasn't been the happiest of places for Ulster to go in the last uh, in the last number of years, really, since that last uh, semi final that they had in the Aviva. Yeah. Um, and even that nearly went against them. Yeah, like I don't know if we can say that. Yeah, that was that wasn't a, a great day, as it were. They really could have lost to an inferior Edinburgh team, but mm-hmm. um, I don't think Racing are going to slip up at the weekend anyway. So I don't think the semi final thing's going to come into it. But obviously, the higher up you finish, if you know, if Racing get knocked out, somebody's going to get to lose. In uh, it looks like you know one of the top seeds in Ulster's pool is going to get to lose. So anything can happen, really. But um, tell me how important do you think this uh, this game on Saturday is? Give me a ranking from. Uh, Rainbow Cup to uh, European Cup final level of importance. Rainbow Cup's the better one, isn't it? Right. Obviously, Rainbow Cup being 10. <laughs> First of all, I think it's very important because I want them to avoid Toulouse because I want to go somewhere that's not Toulouse. They've been there enough recently. Um, also have. I haven't. I've still never been. Every time I've been meant to go, it's been cancelled. Or my flight's been cancelled or something has gone wrong. Um, importance. I'm gonna put it. I'm gonna put a numerical value on it because I don't. I don't really know what the equivalent game would be. I'll. I'll say. I'll say sort of. Uh, I'll say a seven, and mainly because we all know the importance of home advantage in the knockouts, and not just for the last sixteen game, like because of the two-legged system. I don't think home advantage is massively beneficial. Like it will play a factor, but I don't think it'll be massively beneficial. In a one-off quarterfinal, it's massive. And we know, especially whenever you're probably going to play a better team in the last eight than you are in the last 16, unless you are the unlucky ones to get to lose in the last 16. Um, so for me, I think you have to win this game in order to give yourself the best chance possible of going deep in this competition, because we know that Ulster can beat anybody at Kingspan Stadium. They've proven that over the years. Um, They've done it this year already. They're having more important away wins than they are home wins, but even so, you always love that uh, that backing from your home fans, especially whenever Ulster are one of the few teams that are actually allowed essentially full capacity or more or less full capacity in at the moment. So the benefits down the line are huge. And I think you can't take your eye off the ball this week. There, there could very easily be a feeling of we've got it done and we've we've sort of achieved what we need to. But second seed is much, much more beneficial than fifth or sixth seed, that's for sure. And uh, down the line, they'll definitely thank themselves if they get the job done this week. Yeah, we should point out whenever we're saying that the Somebody has to get to lose. Somebody has to get Connacht too, which uh, also probably I, have a better record in their last five games against Toulouse than they did in their last five against uh, Connacht. I put out a tweet. I tried to do my way too early predictions for this weekend and Ulster got Connacht. And similarly, I love Connacht, but I would very much like Ulster to get a team that is not Connacht because I want to go somewhere, preferably on the southeast coast of France. So you're just making you're making your life as a journalist sound far too glamorous now. It's like you're, you're not looking for the stories anymore. You're just looking for a, a wee trip to the south of France in the middle of the pandemic. You touched on it there about how important it is. How do you think that will play into selection? Do you think we will see absolutely full strength team out here, or as full as they can select? I suppose. And would you make any changes from the team that? 
beat Northampton. And this is an interesting one because bearing in mind that prior to this week's presser, which is later on today on Tuesday, the last we heard about Stuart McCluskey was that he was targeting this game for a comeback. Mm. But uh, obviously you... being through, you know, do you risk somebody coming off a hamstring injury? Obviously, James Hume came into last week with a bit of a hamstring strain. Do you maybe take the opportunity to rest him? I mean, from, from an Ulster perspective, you have to pick your best team. Like, that's that's a non-negotiable. I thought whenever you ask that, you were maybe referring to Claremont. Um, no, uh, Ulster will be going full strength in this game, 100%. Do you not think uh, Claremont will pick their best team? Claremont need to win. Well, I, 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 yeah, I think they'll put their full strength team out as well. But if there's one of these two teams might not, go full strength, I think it would be Claremont more than Ulster because French teams have this weird obsession with randomly deciding to not play their full team. Cough, Montpellier, cough. To be fair to Montpellier, I think this might be something of a false narrative because I'm not sure how many other players they had. It was still an incredibly disinterested performance, but obviously just with the COVID situation, I think that may have been near enough as well as they could do. Well, I, I did find it very funny that they had all these academy and inexperienced guys and then all of a sudden they had game Garado thrown into the middle of it it was like where do you fit into this weird puzzle of Montpellier players it's a great question on McCloskey because I said earlier I wouldn't change anybody in that back line at the moment but I, I think that is sort of a decision that you have to make with the doctors early this week and say is Stuart McCloskey fully fit because you do have to factor in that you are already qualified. Stuart Murr played well last week. So it might be a case of if Stuart McCluskey isn't fully ready to go, then yes, you do say, look, we're going to sit you for one more week and make sure you're ready. Put him back in against the Scarlets. And that's his head out before the, before the Six Nations. Or if he is fully fit, look, as well as Stuart Murr played, Stuart McCluskey is still your number one inside centre. I think his and Hume's partnership works perfectly together. You saw especially how it worked at the Marcel Michelin earlier this season. You know, it was those two who really took the fight to Claremont in the centres. And that was where they got a lot of their purchase in the backs. So I think there is definitely a bit of rhyme and reason to running that same centre partnership again. But I think, yeah, that'll all come down to the physios and how prepared they feel McCluskey is uh, for Saturday's game. Apart from that, I wouldn't change a thing. Um, If Andrew Warwick isn't fit, I know he went off early. If Warwick isn't fit, then I think O'Sullivan comes straight in to start because I thought he was superb, especially, I can't remember exactly when it is. I think the last game he played was the Leinster game down at the RDS and he hadn't played since. To come in and especially to come on so early, in a European game away from home and put in the performance that he did. That's a massive credit to him. I thought he was excellent at loose head. So I think you reward him. Really his best performance for a while. Certainly. I mean, he was one of those players who was really on an upward trajectory before COVID. And since then hasn't hit those heights again. You've seen him drop below Warwick in the pecking order. McGrath's come back and that's taken away some game time from him as well. I know they want to play Reed a bit as well because they think that he's got a good upside in terms of an academy prospect. And O'Sullivan for a while was looking like the guy who was the odd one out, essentially. Um, so for him to be putting in the graph behind the scenes, to come in, to come back in and put in a performance like that off the bench where you're coming on a bit cold after only a quarter of an hour, that's the kind of performance that Ulster are wanting from their depth players to put their hands up and say, well, don't forget about me. 
I'm still here. I'm still an option for you. So I think you have to reward him this week by putting him into the starting lineup if Warwick isn't available. The only question I would have is, can you ask him to go you know, 60 minutes after he played uh, 65 minutes last week unexpectedly? But I'm sure he probably can. But as I said, apart from that, I wouldn't change a thing. I think if you uh, if you start tinkering with that team too much, then you're doing them a disservice for what they did at Franklin's Gardens. I think you try and roll as close to the team that played Northampton as you can. Yeah, I, I, I do agree with you. You're supposed to play devil's advocate a touch. Are you going to play the same team three weeks in a row, which would near enough be the same team four weeks in a row? I am aware they didn't play two weeks beforehand, but... It's an interesting debate as to which game is now more important. Well, what what changed it? Last, last week, you would have said by far Claremont is more important than Scarlet's. But whenever we looked at this 10 week block at the very start, you know, Dan was very, um, very adamant that Scarlet's was sort of included in this, this block, even though it was at the end and probably on paper wasn't, wasn't the glamour fixture, if you like of a European game or the Interpros, which made up the vast majority of the of the rest of the block with the exception of, of Ospreys away. But just after that monster loss, having lost to Ospreys, having lost to Connacht, the league table's very tight. Scarlets, it doesn't seem like, are going to be taking their European game at the weekend very, very seriously. They've got Bristol. So you don't want to be caught cold by emptying the tank of these guys and then making lots of changes for Scarlets and getting beat by Scarlets. Consider how Ulster have played in Europe over recent weeks, or sorry, recent years. Think about how important the European Cup is to Ulster. Ulster haven't had a deep run in the European Cup since 2012, whenever they got to the final. I think if you are put in this position where you have a great chance to finish in the top two seedings, I think you've got to take it. I think there would be massive regret if they said, we'll rest so-and-so, we'll rest so-and-so because we need them against the Scarlets. They lose to Claremont and they end up on the road throughout the knockouts in Europe. I think that would I think that would be a bit of a killer to the confidence. If you lost to Scarlets, you can at least make up the ground later on in the URC. I think Ulster would back themselves to make up the ground later in the URC. Europe, this is your one shot to secure a home advantage through the knockouts or for most of the knockouts. And I think they'll be looking at that and thinking, this is pretty important for us to say where we are as a team now. Okay, well, speaking of Claremont, we also had the uh, the announcement on Jared Payne's departure from Ulster at the end of this season. I'd ask how impressed you've been with his role as defence coach over the last number of years, having come in without any coaching experience. And how big a blow you think it is for Ulster to have lost them? Well, I was reading Paul Marshall's Premier Sports column at the weekend in the in the Sunday Life, and he was saying his time uh, whenever Jared was coach only overlapped briefly because he retired whenever uh, Jared had only stepped in on a temporary basis uh, alongside his playing duties, and he said he was staggered at how quickly Jared adapted to the coaching side of things and how natural he made him or he made it look. And I think you just saw that as he became a coach, you know, he just transitioned perfectly from player to coach. 
um, as somebody who was so good defensively as a player. I think he just had that second sense of how then to adapt that whenever he wasn't playing and how to uh, get that across on the pitch. Look, there's no doubt he did a great job. You know, Ulster's defence has, for the most part, been very good. There's There's been very few games where you sort of thought to yourself, man, Ulster's defence was dreadful there. Um, and I think one of the things that he has to take a lot of credit for is for that rush defence, to sort of coin an American term, which is, you know, very up in your face, which I don't think we'd seen from Ulster for several years before that. Trying to harry teams, make them uh, have less time on the ball and have to make quicker decisions. And you even saw that during the uh, the Claremont game earlier this year. That was one of the the big games where their defense was so good. And um, essentially, the only tries that Claremont got were off uh, great set plays that led to Pinot getting a couple. The, the thing is, there are so many coaches out there that they'll get someone. It's finding the right one. It's it's not like Ulster are going to be desperately searching for people to replace him. There are going to be a lot of people interested in taking over a team that is very visibly on a rise in terms of their ability and their trajectory. But it's finding the right person to take that defence onto the next level and saying, what can you do to make our defence even better? You know, you don't want the status quo. You want to move them on and take them to... Um, take them to the to defence that'll win them silverware and for me that's going to be the biggest disruption is just the fact that they have to bring in another coach you know Jared will be missed it'll be interesting to see who they bring in as as the next person and maybe even if they decide to look internally yeah I think that's a point worth exploring Adam because as important as I think Jared Payne has been and it's easy to forget how really rather putrid Ulster's defence had become in the years prior to uh, him becoming the defence coach. The last, if you like, rock star assistant coach that Ulster had was John O'Gibbs, and he's really an outlier. And he wasn't even termed an assistant coach. He was termed the head coach to Les Kiss's director of rugby. Like, Dwayne Peel is obviously now the head coach of Scarlet's, but when he came in, he had very little coaching experience whenever he got the job as attack coach, Aaron Dundon didn't have a great deal of coaching experience. Roddy Grant didn't have a huge amount of coaching experience. Dan Sober had a lot of experience, but it was at school's level before he was made skills coach. Craig Newby was coaching in a school before he was made this year's, this year's skills coach. So I don't think, or sorry, rather, it would be fair to say it would be very out of character for them to go and hire a big name as their defence coach, especially when you have a highly thought of coach, young, indigenous in the shape of Willie Falloon, who you will be coaching defence for the Ireland under-20s during the the Six Nations. So it's another one of those where because there's an opening, it's going to lead to an amount of speculation, but I wouldn't expect it to be a high-profile appointment. No, absolutely not. Um, That's not to say it won't be, you know... But I think you've basically just laid out exactly the model that Ulster have been following for the recent uh, few years, which is it doesn't have to be a big name for it to work. You know, Jared Payne was someone who stepped in and did a good job and got the job permanently. You look at all those guys that you mentioned that Ulster have hired, they have done a good job without having 
huge credentials. I think one of the things that Ulster have certainly prioritised is the person and the character of whoever they hire in the role rather than necessarily their previous achievements because there are things that will work in certain environments that won't work in Ulster's environment and you have to discover which persons were gets the system that Ulster try to play. So it might be Willie Falloon. We don't know if Craig Newby maybe wants to look at uh, the skills co- or the defense, co- defense coach role because he's out of contract at the end of the year. He was only signed on a one-year deal. It could be that he wants to, he has designs on maybe having a, a bigger say in that coaching staff. We, we don't know. We uh, certainly, I haven't heard any, any names that might be getting the job, but certainly that they will take their time. And the thing is, with Jared in situ until the end of the season, it's not a decision that they need to rush either. It's something that they can approach maybe a little bit further down the line, maybe during the Six Nations, whenever they've got a few weeks off and they can take their time really researching candidates rather than hurrying an appointment that wouldn't be right. But it'll be interesting to see who, who they go out and get. But I, I would be with you. I would be surprised if it was a, a big name or someone like that. Because it is worth remembering as well that um, an awful lot of coaches who come into jobs like this in this environment become big names. Like Mark McCall came in without any coaching background to Ulster and is now one of the best coaches in the world. Jeremy Davidson's doing a great job in uh, Breve. You look at the likes of you know Neil Doak and Johnny Bell, they were in a sort of similar position whenever they started coaching Ulster and developed into coaches that were then wanted elsewhere you know so you don't even necessarily always need that massively experienced coach it's sort of as you say about fit and uh because a coaching ticket really is a team so what you know what you say about fit is correct and well if, if you if you think about ronan o'gara with la rochelle and i know this isn't ulster but just as an example ronan o'gara's style is working brilliantly with la rochelle and naturally, everyone is linking him with Munster and saying, this is the perfect time, your home province, the job has come up to be head coach there, surely you would come back. Would Ronan O'Gara's style work with the players that Munster have right now? I don't think so. And sure, it would be his dream job. I'm sure that he would love to be head coach of Munster. He's already said he's not going to be, but I'm sure at some point in his career, he would love to say, I have been head coach of Munster as well as having played for Munster. But right now, he is not the right fit for Munster because the way he tries to play the game would not suit the skill sets of Munster's current squad. And that, for me, is why Ulster need to take their time over this decision because you could get the greatest events coach in the world in, but the way he tries to play is just something that your players cannot grasp so for me they have to take their time and they have to get this right because Jared will leave big shoes to fill and it will be very quickly obvious next season if whoever steps in hasn't managed to get them playing in, in a similar way well it's interesting that you mentioned Ogar as well because looking at that idea of his dream job coming up but I think O'Gara is an example for every coach or should be an example for every coach because he's somebody that knew one environment for his entire career, really. Well, sorry, one club environment 
for his entire career. But he went away to Racing, he went to Crusaders, he went to La Rochelle. He's really broadening his coaching horizons and he's waiting for a time when that return home is the right fit. So I think it's interesting that you use Agar as the example because that's why I think what Payne's doing makes so much sense for him to go and experience a different environment, a different coaching environment. He's been here for 10 years, 11 years actually, um, since 2011. And it's easy to forget that because there's not too many people have been in that environment continuously longer than he has, like Craig Gilroy and Luke Marshall. Herring would have come in around that time. So um, for him to go out and experience a different rugby culture, a different league, um, a different way of doing things, I think it'll be great for him. And, you know, obviously Dan's doing a great job, so you're not, like, forecasting who could be the next Ulster coach. But if he does have this attachment to Ulster, obviously he's... um, he now has family that are, that are from here. Um, so there'll always be a tie here regardless. Like you wouldn't realize seeing him come back down the line with a, you know, a more varied coaching CV that would all feed into what could make a very good head coach. I agree. Well, just one last piece of business for this week. Uh, the news yesterday that Jacob Stockdale was going to be out most likely for the rest of the season is had surgery on that ankle over in London yesterday which was uh, which was Monday speaking about it on his Instagram he's confirmed that he was likely going to miss the rest of the season and would use the injury as an opportunity to come back stronger now Jacob's only played one game this season he's been out since the first game of the season although he did go did go the full 80 in that game but we talked about McElroy Obviously, Balakun uh, was brilliant at the weekend. But how big a loss is Jacob for the rest of the season? I think it's very it's very easy to forget, I suppose, because of those other wingers that we've mentioned, how big a part of this team Jacob would have been considered back at the start of the season whenever he first picked up the injury. Mm. I'm going to try and phrase this right. It's not as big a loss as it would have been if we'd known he was out for the rest of the season when he actually sustained the injury, but it is still a big loss. Like if you think about if you could add Jacob Stockdale, an international winger, he's still a quality, quality player. And if you could add him back into this back three mix for Ulster, well, it's just another quality addition to what is already a quality back three. So obviously he is a loss. You know, you want to have that ability to rotate players and have options that if one player is maybe not playing quite so well over the last couple of weeks, well, you just bring in another great player. You know, let's let's say Robert Balcoon has a couple of bad weeks and you just say, look, Robert, we're going to give you a couple of weeks off. We'll bring Jacob in. You know, so from that perspective, of course, he's a big loss for Ulster. But as we said earlier, you know, was he if he was coming back next week would you be putting him into that back three well probably not because all of those players are playing so well at the moment I don't see why you would drop them for Jacob so for me look big loss I think Ulster are very well served in the back three so they're not going to feel it quite as much as if this happened at the start of the season what about the uh the Six Nations period though Adam because if you take Balakun and potentially Laurie out of that mix with Stockdale and Addison injured, there's going to be an opportunity during these intercruise for 
the likes of Ben Moxham, the sort of forgotten man, Aaron Sexton as well, possibly in this back three. Obviously, um, Craig Gilroy didn't feature at the weekend, but is fit. So you've got him to come back into this mix as well. Plus Rob Little. He would have been very useful during the Six Nations. That's for sure. And I imagine... Well, the thing is, you know, Andy Farrell likes him. He keeps calling him up even whenever he hasn't been playing much. So there's every chance that even if you lost Balakun and Lowry and you play Stockdale in a couple of games, he doesn't get a call up to the Ireland squad anyway. So it might not have even been a case of you would have had him during the Six Nations to play all these games. He might have played one. You wouldn't have seen him again for the next six weeks. So, look. Which is what happened last year, wasn't it? Or was mm-hmm. it that? Yeah. He played that one game against the Dragons, Dragons scored that outrageous try or, or set up. I can't even remember now. Did he score it or did he set it up with that incredible run? Um, I think he set it up. I think he I think he put uh, Shanahan over or something like that. Anyway, look, he, he would have been very useful during the Six Nations. But for me, I, I always like to see young guys coming in and getting their chance during the Six Nations, be it Rob Little, be it Ben Moxham, be it Aaron Sexton. You know, I, I do quite like seeing these guys being given the freedom to try and express themselves when the other guys are away and to put a bit of pressure on them while they're down with Ireland. So Jacob Sogdiel will add to Ulster's back three. Like, don't, I think a lot of people come away from this thinking I'm talking him down. Absolutely not. He's a world-class player when he's at his peak. Um, I just think Ulster are better served to cover for his absence than they would have been even as recently as four or five months ago. And another position that they may not be as well um, covered during the Six Nations period, and I know we're jumping ahead at least a week here, um, possibly even two weeks, but um, it's going to be Hooker because Bradley Roberts has been announced as being in the Welsh squad today. We're expecting Rob Herring, obviously, to be in the Ireland squad tomorrow. Tom Stewart has still been on the injured list, so... We've talked quite a bit about John Andrew and his l- lack of opportunities in relation to how well he played last year, but he could be set for a real extended run of game time in two big games during those presumably rescheduled interviews. I think it is very interesting that even though Brad Roberts was available on Sunday and he was there as one of the extra players at Franklin's Gardens, they still kept... John Andrew on the bench. So this is the kind of thing that Ulster have been crying out for. (laughs) Well, they didn't take him off the bench, that is true. But, you know, the vote of confidence of keeping him on the bench or keeping him on the bench for another week as opposed to bringing Brad Roberts straight back onto the bench, I think says a lot about the kind of depth that Ulster are bringing, that they're not only having guys who can step in. They're having guys who are stepping in and clearly putting their hand up enough that they're staying in the squad. But you're right, there is going to be a little bit of a, a, a lack of hookers over the Six Nations if, as we expect, Herring and Roberts are both away. John Andrew will probably step in, will probably play most of the games. They had Declan Murr on loan from Munster I imagine they're probably going to have to go out and get someone else. Maybe they bring Declan back. Maybe they maybe they go and get someone else on loan just to cover uh, over the Six Nations. Uh, I don't know if James McCormick is ready to step up from the academy or not. 
but he could potentially be an option during these Six Nations games. But you're right, Hooker is a position that is going to be a little bit of a problem over the next few weeks. Hopefully Tom Stewart can come back because he's a great prospect. Uh, A lot of people are raving about him, and I think we even saw that in the brief time he was on against the Ospreys. So I'm sure they have some kind of solution. They're not they're not going to go into the Six Nations with one available hooker. I, th- I think they'll work something out, but it, it'll be interesting to see how they handle it. If they think McCormick is ready to step up and he's going to be the backup to, to John Andrew, or if they feel they need to go and add someone just on a short-term basis. It's just going to be an interesting period because obviously there was no plan really to have games during this first block of the Six Nations, but now the way that it's worked out, I suppose they have, we think, four games in five weeks. Mm. And the followed thing is- by two down weeks, followed by two weeks in South Africa, mm. potentially. And that's what's <laughs> scheduled anyway. Whether that <laughs> comes to pass or not remains to be seen. But um, Wait for the next variant to break out and ruin that. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, that's going to be a testing trip as well. Mm. Off the back of the Six Nations, because... You would imagine that anyone that plays a big role in the Six Nations isn't going to be going on that trip. And the thing is, because of the way that the schedule has been done for this year in order to play less games during the international windows, it means that teams have shortened their squads. You know, They have made the decision to run with maybe three senior hookers and whoever they've got in the academy, rather than maybe four hookers or five hookers in the past few years. Ulster still have four and they are slightly unlucky that two of them are going to be away for the Six Nations and one is injured. But at the same time, you know, this this is the pinch that suddenly teams are finding themselves in looking ahead over the over the next few months. And you've seen it with a lot of teams. Like there's a lot of teams making loan signings at the moment. Every time I open Twitter, it seems like another team has signed someone on loan because all of a sudden their players are injured or isolating or whatever it is. So it will be an interesting time, but certainly John Andrew, for a guy who we you know, were questioning, where was he after the season he had last season where he was so impressive, to suddenly go to a position where I don't think he played for the first, I think, eight or nine games of the season. Now it looks like he's going to be starting every game during the Six Nations, and he must be delighted with uh, how it's worked out for him. Yeah, I mean, potentially you're talking about the possibility of six six starts in a row now, possibly. But we should leave ourselves something to talk about uh, in future podcasts. There's no point getting too far ahead of ourselves uh, any more than we already have done. So, from myself and from Adam McKendry, this has been the Ulster Rugby Roundup. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.